Take a look at Jesus' question. That Alex read was verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who is my family? Jesus asked. What did you think when you heard that being read? Jesus enters the house. Large crowd is gathered. He's stuck in the middle of the room, teaching his disciples and those that are, that are around him. Someone says to him, your family, your brother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus replies, who are my mother and my brother? He's asking, who is my family? We're thinking tonight about what does it mean to be a part of Jesus' family? What does it mean to be in God's family? To be in on the inside with Jesus. So hold that thought in your mind. This evening's passage is for us the first of what one of the literary devices Mark uses called a Markin sandwich. I don't know whether you've heard of that. We had toasties tonight. But here we have a Markin sandwich. What is that? Basically, it's when you have one story sandwiched in between another story. So, verse 20 and 21, we're introduced to Jesus' family as they come to take charge of him. And then verse 33 to verse 35, his family come back again onto the stage. And in between that, you've got this encounter with Jesus and the teachers of the law. The sandwich, a mark and sandwich. So why does he use this device? We'll see it as we go through Mark's Gospel a few times. Well, sometimes he uses it to emphasize something, to, to, to highlight the importance of what he's teaching. Maybe he'll use it to, to bring attention to the scene. Maybe he'll want, he wants to compare or to contrast two events or two characters, two people. So he uses it to highlight something that's important for us to take note and to listen to. So what is he doing here? Well, I think he's either comparing or he's contrasting two responses to Jesus. Now, you may think at first glance, he's probably contrasting. You know, Jesus' family, they're obviously on his side. They're his family, they know him well, they've come to see him. On the other side, you've got the teachers of the law. Now, they're like the Pharisees. They don't like Jesus, they've come to stop him. And so Jesus is contrasting them. But if you take a closer look, and if you consider Jesus' question, who are my mother and my brothers? you start to see that actually he's not contrasting, but he's comparing two similar responses to Jesus, to who Jesus is. Two groups of people who are in opposition to his ministry, yes, to different levels, to different extents, but ultimately in opposition to what Jesus is doing, to his ministry, to the things that he's involved in. And so, as Jesus asked the question, who is my family, what does it mean to be a part of my family, then deceiving ourselves, you should ask, what does it mean to be a part of Jesus' family? To be in on his side. So Mark gives us these two stories, and as we look at each in turn, we'll look at what is the response that they give to Jesus. And I'll give it to you as a statement, but also with a question mark. And we'll ask ourselves, is this really true? So the first one, the first accusation, the first opposition is Jesus is mad? Question mark. We have Jesus' family in verse 20 and 21. We've not met them yet so far in Mark. And actually, if you read his gospel, we don't really come across them much at all. You read Matthew and Luke, you see a lot of, and John, a lot of Jesus' family, particularly his mother. But in Mark, it's not his particular focus. We see it here, and we see it also again in, in chapter 6. 
We see that his mother is Mary, that he has brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. But then we don't really hear about them again. His family is not really a focus for Mark. But here, he is showing us, at this point anyway, the response that his family gives to Jesus. And so if you look at verse 20, he's entered the house. As we saw last week, he's chosen his 12 disciples, the apostles. He's come back into the town. The crowd is still there, aren't they? They're still wanting to come and see Jesus, to hear what he has to say, to see his miracles. And his family have arrived. This poor guy, is he doesn't get a rest, does he? He can't even eat, as we see in these verses. He's been healing people, he's been teaching, he's been delivering people from demons, causing a real stir. A huge crowd has come to gather around him. And um, it's just a great reaction to who Jesus is. You can think about those times when you've seen on the news somebody has done something big, whether good or bad, and the world's media has come and arrived at the family's house. They've camped their trailers on the, on the driveway. The reporters are all over the grass wanting to get an interview with the family. And they're stuck in their house. They, they can't leave because of all these reporters. Well, Jesus' family, his relatives, they've heard all that's been going on in Capernaum, all that Jesus has been doing. They've heard the stories, the news has travelled, and they've come to the conclusion that he's out of his mind. He's mad. Are they really saying that he's crazy or insane? There's no doubt that they've heard or seen his miracles, they've heard about him casting out demons, they've heard about his teaching, the claims that he's been making. News has travelled, remember, across all the different parts of Israel. They've heard about this. But of all the people that know Jesus, surely his family know him best. He's been raised by his mother. He's played with his brothers and sisters. But now, suddenly at the age of 30, he's become this mega superstar. The whole country knows who he is. He's performing great supernatural acts, making huge claims for himself. He's gathered a massive crowd, big frenzy going on. How would you react if this was someone in your family? You can imagine the stories that are going around Nazareth, where his family have come from. Gossip, perhaps, talking about Jesus, Mary's son. For his family, well, maybe you'd expect genuine concern for their son. This poor guy is not being able to eat. He's probably having a hard time sleeping, so maybe they're, they're, they're concerned about him. They want to go down and bring him some bread. Maybe they're concerned because they've heard the reaction of the, of the Pharisees, the religious rulers. They're concerned about fallout, what's going to happen with him. Maybe they're concerned, actually, for their own reputation. They've heard of all the gossip that's been going on at, at home. They see their son is becoming this public figure, and they, they don't want all the attention, and perhaps they've gone down there to, to keep him quiet, to take him away. Here's this guy that they've known for 30 years, and he's, he's been normal since then. But now he's come out on his mission. Now he's preaching this message of repentance. He's performing these great acts. If you'll be here in a few weeks, we'll look at the responses that his family, and particularly those in Nazareth, give in chapter 6. we look at the response of his own hometown. And it is a negative one. How would you respond if someone in your family, had, who you'd known all their lives, had suddenly become this person, or publicly this person that Jesus is becoming? 
But could his family's response be even worse than that? They think he's out of his mind. They've come to take charge of him. Quite strong language, meaning to take him by force, to arrest him and, and remove him from the scene. Their view is that he's out of his mind. Maybe he is crazy. He's making such great claims for himself that can only be attributed to God. He's giving himself such authority and personal authority in his teachings. He's dabbling with demonic activity. It's a bit dangerous. All the sick people are coming to him for healing. He might get ill himself. It's a bit weird. A bit odd. It's a bit crazy. This is Jesus. This is our brother, my son. It could be they think he's mad and maybe they also think that he's maybe demon-possessed himself. There was a, a thought that in, in science he was linked with being possessed by the devil. But as we look at Jesus' words and his actions and the things that he's done, as we see all that we've seen so far in Mark's Gospel, what is our response? You could respond in a similar way. We've seen a man do things that no other man has done and say things that no other man has said. Some respond in fear, in astonishment, they marvel. We're asking the question, who is this man? We've never seen anything like this at all before. Such power, it's a bit scary. Maybe he is a bit mad, a bit insane. Who can forgive sins but God? Who should go against the Pharisees? These are the teachers of the, of the law. He would break the Sabbath in such a way as he did. Surely only a, a God-man or a madman would attribute to themselves such claims, call themselves the bridegroom of Israel, and things that we've been looking at so far. Jesus is mad. Question mark. Secondly, Jesus is bad. Question mark. As Jesus is in the house, as he's has the crowd surrounding him, the, the teachers of the law, they turn up. Who are these guys? Well, they've come down from Jerusalem. These are the, the top dogs, the, the important people, the, the rulers of the religion. They, like many others, have heard the news of Jesus. They've heard what's been going on. Whether they've seen it for themselves or not, we don't know, maybe they have. Many have come to marvel at him, but they have come to stand up against Jesus, to accuse him of some quite strong things. The teachers of the law. Translated scribes in other, in other translations. Who are these guys? Well, they're the elite, the experts. The people who spend their lives studying the Old Testament. They're like the Pharisees, but yet they're a distinct group themselves. They interpret the law. They created an oral tradition of the law, which unfortunately has become more important than the written law. These guys are the ones you listen to as you learn about Judaism and about who God is and how we should live our lives. They're often intelligence, high status in society. They've been called lawyers, people who will judge people about how they live according to God's law. So these guys are the go-to, the go-to people if we want to know who Jesus is and is what he's doing really right. So what is their conclusion? Who do they say that Jesus is? Well, we have it there in verse 22. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. 
That's quite an accusation. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Who or what is Beelzebul? You may be asking yourselves. Beelzebub was a, a kind of a mocking name that the Israelites used to use in the Old Testament for their foreign gods. A similar meaning in the New Testament too. It kind of means Lord of the house or master of the, of the dwelling. Prince of demons. They're accusing Jesus of being related to demons and maybe even Satan. Whether they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself, we don't know, but it's a pretty extreme accusation they're making of this man. They don't believe Jesus' power is from God, but they believe it's from the devil. Notice that they don't deny that Jesus has power and that he's done these things. They've seen lives change. They've heard the news. They're obviously knowing that demons are being, people are being set free from demons. But they don't think it's from God. They deny the real true source of his power. Jesus isn't of God, he's of Satan. That is their conclusion. That's their judgment that they give, that they accuse him of. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus did all these amazing things. He showed all this power that he has, and yet people still didn't believe in who he was and the things that he did. They still rejected him, still denied him, they still walked away. So what is Jesus going to say in response? Remember, these are the experts in the law. These are the people that we should listen to regarding what is true and right of of the, the scriptures. Well, Jesus calls them over and he speaks to them in parables. We all know many parables. We know what a parable is. First time we come across parables in Mark's Gospel. Why does Jesus use parables? Why does he use parable here? Short stories, illustrations Jesus uses to make a point, to um, teach a particular truth. Next week and the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at, at some specific parables. But why does Jesus use them? For parables are there to teach those who are willing to listen, those who believe. And parables are there to judge those don't want to believe and don't want to listen. Jesus is wanting to, to do this, to, in a way, judge those who are disobeying, disobeying him and disbelieving in him, but also teach truth to those who are willing to listen and take time out for Jesus. And so read with me again, verses 20, 20, end of 23, for what Jesus says. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? How can Satan drive out Satan? Isn't it obvious? The kingdom is divided and the kingdom will, will fall. If there's infighting with people, they're fighting against themselves rather than against other people, then that kingdom's not going to last. The ultimate downfall of the Roman Empire was due to something similar to this. Big empire, but yet there's division, infighting, and the kingdom came to an end. Imagine if you're a sports person, you go with your team onto the sports field, and you're playing a match against the opposition, but yet within your team there's division. The attackers, they're found out going to score goals, but the defenders, they're not so keen. 
They let the goal, leave the goal open for the opposition to score. They even score own goals themselves. If there's division, if there's infighting, if you're against your own team, then you're not going to win. And so Jesus proves his point to the teachers of the law. How can I be possessed by a demon? How can I be on Satan's side if I'm doing stuff against him and seeking to put him down? So that's what he's not doing. But then Jesus goes on to say what he is actually doing by casting out demons. And I think this little section here is a particular parabolic section. He's going to tell people who are willing to listen what his mission is really about, what he's here to do. Why is he really casting out demons? What is it a part of? Verse 27. He goes on, in fact, if no one, sorry, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying up, tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So you have a house, a strong man in the house. People want to plunder the house, but they can't because there's a strong man in the way. If you want to go and, and burgle someone's house and yet there's this big strong man in there, then first you have to do something about him, get him out of the way, and then you can go in and take whatever you want. So you're free to, to do it. But unless you do something about the strong man, then there's, 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 no, there's no help, there's no point. But do you notice that to tie up the strong man, you need a stronger man to tie up the strong man. And so what Jesus is saying is that by tying up the strong man, the stronger person, he's now then free and able to take what's, what's in the house. See, for us in the parable, the strong man represents Satan. The house represents the world. The possessions in the house are the, are the people. Satan has captured and enslaved people by his power. He keeps them trapped from God. And there needs to be a stronger man to come and deal with that strong man, with Satan, so that those people can be set free. So in the Gospels we read of Jesus casting out demons from people. People who are enslaved by Satan. But we know definitely from other parts of the Bible that all of us are in the same place. We're in the same boat. We're all enslaved to sin. We're all enslaved to Satan's power. We're trapped. We're under control. Under the control of sin. We can't escape in our own power and in our own strength. And we're going to suffer the eternal consequences of what that means. Satan's too powerful for us to tie him up. The chains of sin are too strong to break free from them. We need a stronger man to come and first tie up Satan, but then also break the chains to set us free from slavery. So through this little parable, Jesus is telling people who are willing to listen, that this is what I've come to do. I've come to tie up the strong man and plunder the house, take back all those that have been enslaved. He's delivering people from, from, from demonic power there in front of him, but it's just a small part, a small illustration of what he's ultimately going to accomplish at the cross. At the cross we see the death of Jesus. As he hangs on the cross, he pays the price for sin. The wrath of God and his judgment falls upon him, and through faith in Christ, people can be saved. They can be redeemed from slavery, set free from the condemnation to hell. 
And as we as Christians look back at the cross, we see there Satan is defeated. Sin is paid for. Through the resurrection, he's defeated death and hell. And through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. That's what Jesus has come to do. But unfortunately, the teachers of the law, they've rejected this. They've denied Jesus. They attribute his work to Satan and they're not following him. What does Jesus then go on to say? Verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. In these verses, there's a positive and a negative thing that Jesus says. People often jump quickly to the negative, to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what that means. The unforgivable sin. Have I committed it? Do I know if I have or not? It can be a worry and has been a worry for many people. But before we go there, let's go back to the positive thing that Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander that they utter. It's the wonderful truth of the Gospel, that all sin can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought. Jesus' blood is enough. The cross is enough for us. Sins can be forgiven. Nothing's beyond God's power. Nothing can can stop us from being forgiven because of what Jesus has done. If people come to him, if people are open, if they come in faith and repentance, if they confess their sins, then they will be forgiven. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that God's grace is sufficient. He tells us in Romans that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. John tells us in his first letter that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive our sins. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the good news for all people to believe. We can be forgiven for our sins no matter what they are. If we come and confess in faith and repentance. But Jesus does go on. He continues. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, to slander committed against God. Jesus is accusing this man of doing such a thing. Jesus has defended who he is, his claims of his power being from God. He is working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with the third person of the Trinity, doing the first person of the Trinity's job. He was God at work. And they rejected it. They denied it. But worse, they've attributed it to Satan. These men have witnessed Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've seen with their own eyes the power that he has. But they persistently and consistently rejected its real source. It's not of God, it's of Satan. They'll never be forgiven because they will never repent. No one who doesn't repent will be forgiven. 
blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that continual, persistent rejection of who Jesus is, accusing him of being the, of the devil. Even in the face of real true evidence, it makes it an internal sin because they'll never see the truth. They'll keep rejecting it till the day that they die. So if we are asking ourselves the question, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Well then, have you put yourself or you, yourselves in the same shoes as these teachers of the law? Do you not deny Jesus? Do you deny the works that he's done by the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you deny that he is who he said he is? Or do you accuse him of being someone who is bad? Worse than that, he's of the devil. He's dangerous. He shouldn't be listened to. He should be put away, done away with. He should be killed. Anyone who comes to the Lord, even people who may be thinking like that at the moment, who may have those, those ideas and thoughts of who Jesus is, there is still time for them to repent, for them to change, for them to come back to the Lord and be forgiven. So we've seen evidence of who Jesus is in Mark's Gospel. Is he mad, like his family has said? Is he bad, like the teachers of the law have said? Or is he God, like he says of himself? We've seen, particularly in the last month or so, different responses to Jesus and to who he is. The crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees, his family this evening. Mark has told us up front who he is. He's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's shown us proof of that through his baptisms, through his, through his works and his, and his teachings. He's given us evidence to prove what he's made, the claim he's made right at the start. At this stage in Jesus' ministry, those who are with him, the disciples, well, they're, they're not where we are. They don't have the whole story. They don't have the whole picture of who Jesus really, truly is and what he's come to do. But the people who are on his side at the moment, they're people who are listening, they're people who are wanting to follow. As you saw last week, they're people who have given up their lives to be with Jesus, to learn from him and to be sent out by him. They've given up their lives to serve God. They, they see that Jesus is here for a real reason, that, that he's a God, he's come to do God's mission, and they're willing to obey, to follow Jesus. How do all these different groups relate to Jesus? Who, who is right? Who has the right um, truth about who Jesus really is? Well, Jesus tells us it's those who do God's will. Those who follow me are my family. And those who are my family are those who do God's will. You see that in verse 25, 35. And who are they in, in this story tonight? The disciples, the family, the teachers of the law, the crowd? Well, have a look at the geography of the scene. Jesus is in the room in the house. He has his disciples around him in a circle. Outside of that, you have the crowd in the room spilling out into the corridor, into the, into the outside. The teachers of the law, they've been in to say their bit. The family, they're on the outside trying to get in. But there's, there's the evidence. 
those who are on the inside are those that are with him in the circle, listening to him, wanting to follow him, wanting to obey him. Those on the outside, well, they're on the outside. But we would have thought that his, his, his parents, his family, surely they should be on the inside. And the teachers of the law, they're godly, they're religious, they know the Old Testament, surely they know who the Messiah is. Surely they're on the inside. But no, we find them on the outside. Jesus' family arrive. Someone comes and says, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Is he being rude? <laughs> is he rejecting his family? Well, he surely is not denying his biological family, but he's, he's making a big statement here. He's claiming something new. He's redefining what it means to be a part of Jesus' family, to be a part of God's family. To be a part of God's family is not about your biological heritage, being related to a Christian. You're not a Christian because you come from a Christian family. To be part of God's family is not nothing to do with being an expert in the law, knowing your Bible really well, being a very religious person. It's not about what you do, about saying the right things and doing the right things. We're not part of Jesus' family by coming to church, by going to home group, by praying, by reading our Bibles. Jesus is earthly family, they're on the outside. At this moment, they're not believing who Jesus is. They're not willing to follow what he's saying. They, they think he's mad. They've come to take control of him and take him away. The teachers of the law, those experts, those who know about God very well, well, they've come to the wrong conclusion. They're on the outside. Those who are his family are those who do the will of God. Those who obey Jesus, who listen to him, who follow him, who recognize who he is, recognize his true power of being from God, and are those who give their lives to follow Jesus. Jesus is either mad, bad, or God. As C.S. Lewis says, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity. I am trying, to, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a, a man and said such, such things as Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with, with a man who would say he's a poached egg or else he would be of the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. There can only be one conclusion about who Jesus 
really is? Who do you say he is? Are you part of God's family? Do you see the things that he's done? You've listened to sermons over the last few weeks. You can't really attribute this to God. He's mad that he would make such claims. Perhaps you think you're on the inside because of your background, because you're from a Christian family. Maybe you think you're on the inside because of your lifestyle, the things you do, the things you say, the religious life that you live. Perhaps you're someone who sees all the evidence in the Bible, but think, if Jesus was here today, and if he did the miracles today, I could see it, and then I would believe. But if people in the, in the New Testament saw Jesus themselves, and didn't believe. Why should you think that you would believe today? Jesus is either mad, bad, or God. His claims are so outrageous that if he wasn't God, then he would be mad. His power is so authoritative that if it wasn't of God, then he would be bad. Mark has shown us his power He's shown us his words and his claims. They match up. The only conclusion we can come to is that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. Come to do God's will. Mark tells us if we believe in who he is, if we're willing to listen, to obey, to follow Jesus, to give our lives to him, then we can be a part of God's family. We can be on the inside. And so if you haven't done that this evening, if you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus, if you've seen who he truly is, you believe that he is the Son of God, and that he's come to rescue you, to save you from Satan's power, through his work on the cross, then you can be forgiven. As Christians here this evening, I'm sure you believe all of this, and you believe that Jesus is truly God in flesh. But we go out into a world tomorrow and we face people who don't believe that. Maybe they, like Lewis said, think he's a good moral teacher. Not many would deny he existed, but he was just a good moral teacher. Why not take the Bible? Why not take the evidence to them and show them, look, look at Jesus' power, look at his claims, look at all that we see about Jesus. He can't be just a great moral teacher. I hope that, that like me, as we've been looking at Mark's Gospel, we've been growing in confidence in Jesus. We've been seeing him anew and afresh. We've been reminding ourselves of how great he is. And it's helped us, hopefully, to, to be more confident in speaking for him and of him to our non-Christian friends. I hope that as we continue to study Mark, that you will grow in that, in that confidence, that you will um, learn more about Jesus' claims, that you can go out and you can say, look, look at his life, look at his character, look at his power, look at the resurrection as we get towards the end of, of, of Mark's Gospel. What greater proof could there be? What greater evidence can there be of who Jesus really is? When we talk with our non-Christian friends, let's, let's use the word of God. Let's show them Jesus, this person, this God-man, 
Let's be confident in who he really is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what, about what we read of you in Mark's Gospel. Thank you, though these words are recorded, written many years ago, that you performing these acts and making these claims were many years ago. Thank you that you're still real and alive today. Thank you that we can see this evidence and we can come and we can believe it by faith. That we can experience your power in our lives. Thank you for all that we learn of who you are. And I pray that that would indeed give us confidence. It would give us boldness to go out and to proclaim you and to declare who you are, to talk about Jesus. Jesus who is, who is like a brother, but who is our God. We are part of your family. And what a, what a joy, what a privilege it is to be a part of God's family because of Jesus. And Lord, if there are people here this evening who don't believe in who Jesus is, if there are people perhaps who are doubting who Jesus is, I pray that they would come to your word. They would see you afresh. They would come with their questions. But ultimately, that they would bow the knee before Jesus as their Lord and as their God. We pray. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.